This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The FT. Welcome to the FT's Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dedder from the Comment and Analysis Desk of the Financial Times. In this podcast, Erica Solomon looks at the mayhem in Syria, where opposition fighters who took up arms four years ago are now struggling to navigate the war that seems to be addressing every agenda except the one that they care about, ending the Assad regime. Fa'id gave up on the Syrian uprising the day he was ordered to turn his guns on the men he had fought alongside for two years. Until last year, his commanders told him jihadi groups, such as Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, known as ISIS, would help them topple President Bashar al-Assad. When they declared ISIS a new enemy, he stopped trying to understand the logic of war. Fa'id, who withheld his full name to protect his family, left the fight. He joined his wife and son at a Turkish refugee camp. All I knew was I was against the regime, said Fa'id, a 32-year-old taxi driver. He puffs on a cigarette as he continues. I didn't know whether ISIS was good or bad. I didn't want to die fighting good people. And I didn't know who the good guys were anymore, he adds. If the world is at a loss over how to grapple with Syria's mayhem, so are those mired in a conflict that has killed more than 200,000 people and displaced half the population since 2011. To many in the opposition, the revolt they started has become unrecognizable. Rebels are now fighting each other for control of resources or territory, almost as much as they are fighting the Assad forces. Jihadis still allied to rebels, such as Jabhat al-Nusra, al-Qaeda's Syria franchise, are now attacking groups backed by the U.S. Syria's war has also become an arena for Shia, Iran, and Sunni Gulf Arab states vying for regional dominance. Their rivalry has deepened a sectarian divide between rebels, dominated by Syria's Sunni Muslim majority, and a government led by Mr. Assad's minority Alawite sect, an offshoot of Shia Islam. U.S.-led coalition airstrikes against ISIS, which began late last year, have further internationalized the crisis. Many rebels are now struggling to navigate a civil war advancing every agenda except the one they took up arms for, an end to four decades of Assad family rule. What was once called a revolution is no longer revolution, says Abu Huzaifa, a commander of a U.S.-backed rebel force, Jaish al-Mujahideen. Now there is this international struggle, he says, and we're allowed to be fuel for the fire, nothing more. This is a critical period both for the opposition leaders trying to prove their relevance and for the international coalition battling ISIS. As coalition-backed Iraqi forces next door are fighting to oust ISIS from northern cities, the U.S., Turkey, and Gulf states are due to start training Syrian fighters to take on the group this month. 
But those efforts can only succeed if they have rebel support. Without a good plan, we will keep losing men, says Ahmed Abu Imad, a spokesman of the Hazm movement, another U.S.-backed rebel force. We have a new generation emerging. We need them to believe in the values of our uprising, he says, to remind them why we started this and show them we are still good people. Even those eager to fight are struggling to stay engaged. Slim, from ISIS-controlled eastern Syria, is raising a local force to combat the group. He is a weary man now, with a long white beard and rough hands. Before agreeing to an interview in the Turkish border city of Sanliorfa, he and his men check carefully for ISIS spies. Slim is a die-hard regime opponent. He remembers being tortured at age 13 for burning a ruling Ba'ath Party slogan at his school. But he is also one of the first commanders who sought to fight ISIS in Syria. Last summer, ISIS militants captured Slim and sentenced him to death. The night before his execution, he escaped through a hole that he and other inmates dug in their cell. After hiding in fields for a week, he smuggled himself into Turkey underneath a truck. Two of us crammed an old box the size of a coffin. He remembers. Slim expected support when he arrived in Turkey last fall. Instead, he found opposition leaders in disarray, unable to agree on how to organize for coalition training. I have good, honest fighters, he says, who fled both ISIS and the regime and who are now sleeping in the streets. We have nobody to help us, he adds. Nobody cares. While tens of thousands of rebels are still in Syria, nearly all of them Sunni, they are on their own in a two-front fight against both ISIS and Mr. Assad. The government has tens of thousands of soldiers and support from foreign and local militias. Analysts estimate that ISIS has at least 60,000 fighters across Syria and Iraq. The coalition plans to train about 5,000 Syrian rebels each year to take on ISIS. In comparison, that looks like a drop in the ocean. Under so much pressure, rebel groups and alliances are constantly falling apart. Hazm's force of about 5,000 men dissolved itself just this week. It was facing increasing attacks from Nusra fighters and found no allies willing to defend it. Mr. Assad's forces are doing their best to take advantage of the chaos, pushing hard to surround and besiege Aleppo, which is the rebels' last stronghold in a major Syrian city. So far, the rebels have kept the regime at bay and even advanced in some areas, but the fate of Aleppo is now a constant worry for the opposition. When the revolt started. Rebels like Abu Faisal say they had a clear sense of purpose. He traces his desire to oust the Assad government to his childhood in the 1980s, when a state crackdown against an Islamist revolt brought Syrian soldiers storming into his house. They broke furniture, pilfered his mother's jewelry, and even smashed his toys. He remembers. He was seven. Abu Faisal, a pseudonym, says he had known what to expect when the street protests first erupted four years ago. He expected police raids, insurgency, military sieges. He had stocked up on rifles well before the armed revolt broke out. What he never expected was to end up where he is now, disillusioned, broke, running a computer repair shop across the border in Turkey. Abu Faisal still wants to fight, but past experience can no longer guide him among commanders he worries are not as committed to ousting Mr. Assad as they are to enriching themselves. Fa'ir, the cab driver, bounced between three rebel groups in northern Syria before quitting. He says his last commander drove a luxury car and owned a villa in Turkey, but wouldn't give him a twenty-dollar a month salary that he could use to help his family get out of a refugee camp. 
Once in Turkey, he harvested lemons for $8 a day. The farm owners, who were Alawites, taunted Syrian field workers, he says. They suspected many were once in the opposition. We followed our hearts for four years just to find out each time we were wrong, says Thaer. I don't want to join another group just to be disappointed like I was with others. Syria has broadly splintered into four parts over the past two years. The Assad regime holds the western spine running south from the Mediterranean coast to the capital, Damascus. Sunni militants hold the northwest and southern border regions. ISIS holds another third of Syria, mostly desert, from the eastern frontier with Iraq to the northern border with Turkey. The Kurds, one of Syria's largest and most oppressed minorities, have carved out a semi-autonomous region in the northeast. It's hard for Thaer to accept this chaos was born of the 2011 protests inspired by the region's Arab Spring, which toppled dictators from Tunisia to Egypt and Libya. In the beginning, I would stand on the sides of the protests and watch security forces come drag people away, he remembers. I wasn't timid, I was terrified. But as protests grew in his northern hometown, Jisr al-Shughur, Thaer did join. Security forces abandoned the town when protests grew violent, leaving locals in charge for almost a month. It was a month of pure freedom, he recalls. We took shifts guarding homes and stores. We discussed ideas, even with people we disagreed with. It was an amazing time, he adds. In Aleppo, Abu Faisal joined a secret armed cell in late 2011, while peaceful protests were still on the streets. It's a fact he's proud of, but many would say such acts helped to stoke the coming bloodshed. The group assassinated officers and Assad loyalists, often Shia or Alawite, who shot protesters in Aleppo. The first time we went after someone, I felt terrible, he said. It was fear, not of being arrested, but of the deed itself. After you do it, you feel better. Maybe dealing this blow will help the killing stop, he added. It didn't. The government brought in tanks and artillery, and a full-scale armed revolt erupted. Sunni resentment was rekindled, fueled by memories of the 1980s rebellion that was crushed by the Assad regime. Foreign Sunni fighters who saw Syria as the next front for global jihad trickled and then poured in. Abu Faisal recalls an Iraqi, known as Abu al-Abad, who fought the U.S. in Afghanistan and Iraq and then came to teach Syrian rebels his insurgency tactics in late 2012. When I first met him, he was already over 50, but he looked great. Not a single white hair on his head, Abu Faisal says. The Syrian revolution turned him gray. Soon, Iraqi and Lebanese Shia militias joined Mr. Assad. The influx of foreigners on both sides brought out sectarian undercurrents that the original protesters had hoped to suppress. Foreign governments such as Qatar and Saudi Arabia began to bankroll rebel groups, Islamists in particular, hoping to influence the direction of the revolt. In 2013, Abu Faisal met a Qatari official at a restaurant in one of the Turkish border cities, where more and more self-proclaimed rebel battalions and brigades were being launched. This is the moment in his memory that marks the revolt's downfall. The official pulled out a briefcase with 500 euro notes. It was about half a million euros, he says. He said, this is for you, Abu Faisal recalls. I hope if you work with other groups, you will mention who helped, he adds. Abu Faisal handed the briefcase back. But others took the money. YouTube videos of well-armed formations thanking foreign backers replaced those of ragtag fighters celebrating the capture of a border post or government building. A few months ago, Abu Faisal tried to rejoin the fight. He went to train a newly formed battalion in Aleppo, but he quickly gave up when he saw that even small unit leaders were squabbling over command. 
The group's leader, an old friend, followed Abu Faisal back to Turkey to ask what went wrong. Abu Faisal asked him to remember the protests they first joined at Aleppo University, where tens of thousands risked their lives for what seemed a noble cause. We had a higher goal, he remembers. Now I don't know what the goals are, he adds. Abu Faisal says he approached every influential commander he knew, begging them to unite. Rebel leaders have made numerous attempts to end the divisions, and each has failed. Many respected leaders who might have had a chance at unifying fighters are now dead. In late 2013, a rocket killed Ba'er's favorite commander, known as Sheikh Sharif, a leader in the once popular Ahrar al-Sham forces. Other commanders started fighting over who should replace him. Fa'ad left in disgust and never found another battalion he trusted. Such disarray makes it hard for coalition-backed groups to organize new supporters. In comparison, groups such as ISIS and Nusra appear more coherent and appealing. ISIS and Nusra have more pros than cons, says Fa'ir. The cons are pretty bad, like killing people who don't deserve to die, he adds. But ISIS established a state in a year. Look at the region they control, he says. They can take on the whole world. The chaos leaves Syrian rebels navigating the vacuum among themselves. For Tha'ir, that has meant accepting more modest aims. He went back to Syria and joined a new rebel formation this month. He does not get a salary, he says, but the group tends its own fields to supply itself and make extra money. For now, they have no ambitions to topple Mr. Assad or control vast swaths of land. The goal is only to recapture their city, Jisr al-Shahur. Fa'ir says he still has not forgiven himself for not making it home before his mother died. You could say I no longer believe in a Syrian revolution, he says. Actually, I think things could get even worse, he adds. For me, this is just about one thing now. Going home. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.